Hey, thanks for listening to Zero Brightness. If you'd like to hear more and help support the show, you can head to patreon.com slash zero brightness or find links to all our socials at zerobrightness.com. Cruelty has always been an important part of modern horror media. I tend to pin the start of modern horror to the 70s and 80s, which saw the rise of the slasher film. The two most iconic slasher films of the era, Friday the 13th and Halloween, both signaled their break from the tropes of classic gothic horror with splashy, stylish intro sequences. In both films, the story is introduced to us not with an iconic establishing shot or a portentous title card, but rather a long, unbroken POV shot of a killer hunting their victims. I always thought it was weird that both movies open this way, but it makes a lot of thematic sense. One of the big changes to horror in the 70s was a heavy infusion of voyeurism. Not just as a plot device, like in Rear Window, or as a shocking high point, like in Psycho, but rather as a normalized technique used throughout any given film. It became a big part of the appeal, like watch the dumb teenagers die in increasingly weird and creative ways, have a good time. It also started to raise questions about the people who liked this kind of stuff. Like, why exactly did they enjoy this? If a genre became famous for quote-unquote punishing women who explore their sexuality or racial minorities, i.e. the death by sex trope and the black guy dies first trope, could it be inferred that the people who enjoy these movies have at least a bit of ingrained misogyny and or racism that they should address? It took many years for these issues to be fully explored in media, mainly because the 80s were almost entirely eaten up by a battle over censorship. Many horror films leaned further and further into the shock and exploitation aspects of the genre, both in spite of and as a response to a manufactured moral panic over explicit media. In the 90s, however, we started to see some works explore these tensions. Candyman and Nightbreed from 1992 and 1990, respectively, use horror tropes to explore the way society can be divided along the lines of class and race. They're both exemplary works that show how horror can be both explicitly political and deeply fantastical. I wouldn't describe either works as realistic or even, you know, trading in realism, and yet they both have a lot of very interesting and important messages about those societal divides. But for the purposes of this episode, the movie that I really want to talk to you guys about is Wes Craven's 1996 masterpiece, Scream. Scream is a transcendent work of meta-horror, a horror movie that is obsessed with horror movies, filled with characters that are similarly obsessed with horror movies. The protagonists of the film gleefully catalog every known horror movie trope and list them off as rules of survival. They know they're in a horror movie and constantly remind the audience of this fact. The true brilliance of the film, however, is in the way that it subverts these very tropes. The antagonists are not who you think they are. They're not the sketchy outliers or the tortured souls, but rather a couple of extremely charismatic cast members, and the survivors of the story feel chosen almost at random. It's a horror film that seeks to hold the mirror up to its audience and ask, why do you like this stuff? It's deeply weird and funny, but also highly critical of the very institution that it inherently upholds. I can draw a direct line between Scream and the many meta-horror films that followed it. 
Films that sought to interrogate their audience and figure out why horror could be so attractive to the same people that its deeply ingrained tropes sought to punish. And yet, a sizable chunk of the horror fandom will always be gore hounds and thrill seekers looking to see the next piece of shockingly violent media without any sort of critical eye cast upon it. It's the push and pull of being a horror fan. Like, you know this thing that you love fuels the toxic dreams of many, and yet it also provides you with some amount of solace. But I digress. I think the transition from exploitation to contemplation in horror media is extremely important. It's what allows great works of contemplative horror, like Raw or Saint Maud, for example, to exist, but it's also what gives conscientious horror fans a metric by which to measure the intentionality of the media they're consuming. Put another way, it gives you an easy way to sort the quality stuff from the exploitative garbage. Personally, my measurement has always been based on cruelty. When I'm watching or experiencing a piece of media, there are some questions that I like to ask myself about it. Like, is this movie cruel in its depiction of abusive or violent behavior? Does the inclusion of these elements have merit or substance? Does the work have something to say about the disturbing images that it includes, or are they included simply to shock or titillate? Do they come from the author's lived experience, or are they just used as window dressing on a story? The best example of movies that fail this test uh, would be those in the entire genre of torture porn. Let's just throw the whole genre in here. It's simply violence for the sake of violence. It's aimed at an audience seeking a sort of jockey-slash-exhibitionist thrill based on witnessing the suffering of others. It's really weird and disgusting, and I don't think you can craft a very good defense of it. The best example of an extremely questionable movie that I might defend if you catch me in the right mood is Solo or The 120 Days of Sodom. The final film of Pier Paolo Pasolini, a leftist filmmaker who was murdered for his political beliefs, Solo is a deeply anti-fascist film that used extremely shocking imagery to make its point. The things depicted in this film are disgusting. Sexual assault, murder, coercion, literal shit-eating, and yet it's all done in service of portraying the fascist ruling class as the villains that they are. Pasolini sought to shock his audience into political action. The insanely cruel things depicted in the film are done with a noble goal in mind. It's not much of a defense of a movie that I don't really think anyone should watch, but it's probably the best I've got. Maybe this is a better way to put it. When Trump was elected, it kind of split his opponents into two camps. On the one hand, you've got people who think you should never body shame someone. And on the other, there are people who would say stuff like, Trump is dumb and fat and he has a tiny dick. Solo is basically two hours of Pasolini calling fascists fat, shit-eating pedophiles with tiny dicks. In a way, it was ahead of its time in terms of portraying fascists as less than human and satirizing them by making them out to be totally debased monsters hiding behind the illusion of order. I guess this begs the question, what even is cruelty? The dictionary definition is, and I quote, callous indifference to or pleasure in causing pain and suffering. That's pretty good, but I think there are almost two separate sub-definitions contained therein. On the one hand, we've got what I would call the legal definition of cruelty. 
that being behavior that causes pain or suffering to a person or animal. This is the definition that could apply to any criminal act or violent act depicted in a work. On the other hand, we've got emotional cruelty, defined as behavior which causes physical or mental harm to another, whether intentionally or not. Slasher and exploitation films shocked audiences by portraying death, violence, and assault through the lenses of callous indifference and glee, depending on the work. It's kind of why I don't care about those genres at all. I get that those do, and sometimes for very good reasons, but I've always despised the archetype of the horror dude bro who stands 70s and 80s horror and just shits on everything else. It always read as weird and creepy to me. Like, read a book without pictures and grow a feeling, dude. As a dude myself, I've found it particularly repulsive and it's led me to steer clear of it entirely. The portrayal of emotional cruelty, however, is a much different and thornier topic in media criticism. Long the subject of prestige dramas and experimental films, it took many years for horror films to tackle serious dramatic topics relating to interpersonal relationships. Once the floodgates were opened, mostly by late 2000s and 2010s era horror dramas, it really felt like we got an amazing crop of films that leaned into the dramatic side of horror and fully explored the concept of horror as metaphor for personal trauma. After years of relying on academic texts to get these sorts of reads on horror films, it was really, really satisfying to see movies incorporate these ideas into the main text of the film. Personally, I'll forever be grateful for the work of directors like Karen Kasama, Julia de Cornau, Robert Eggers, and many others for spearheading a movement of thoughtful horror films. By the 2010s, I had been waiting years for a Western answer to the contemplative and philosophical thread of the J-horror movement, and I was really, really happy to see it come to fruition within those films. It also took some time for thoughtful, contemplative horror to develop within the medium of video games, Although, like an astute younger sibling, it happened much, much faster. It seems hard to believe now, but there were only five years between the Romero light thrills of Resident Evil and the Byzantine psychological horror of Silent Hill 2. Within horror games, Silent Hill 2 is the real scream moment. The work that showed you you could make a fun and engaging piece of horror media that also holds a mirror up to the audience and asks, why do you like this stuff? Put another way, it was one of the first games to make players ask, are we the baddies? This, in my opinion, was Silent Hill 2's big contribution to gaming as a whole and the aspect of the game that Team Silent really inarguably nailed. It's the reason why the game is still considered a masterpiece of meta-horror. Something that's always fascinated me about Silent Hill 2 is the way that it separated the player from the protagonist. Repeatedly throughout the game, the protagonist is shown reacting to his own violence with disgust and revulsion. Early on, it seems like a standard survival horror trope. You know, you, you shoot a big bug and your player character goes, ew. But the game keeps returning to this point and peeling back layers of the plot until you, the actual person playing the game, are disgusted with the violent actions of the protagonist. The central idea of this whole story is that you are playing as a cruel person, 
You don't know it at first, but the protagonist is a man who is cruel, distant, abusive, and eventually violent towards his partner. The point of the game is to play on your preconceived notions of a quote-unquote video game hero and let you assume that the protagonist is a decent person. I mean, he's looking for his wife, he's racked with grief, he must be wholesome. When the truth is revealed, however, it hits like a truck. None of that was the case. He's a bad person. There's also a critique of video game violence tucked in there as well. Although it's articulated much better in Silent Hill 3's famous They look like monsters to you line. Basically, there's no way that a character could go on such a lengthy and unchecked rampage through a game world and still be a hero. Throw in the fact that Silent Hill is a subjective place where, by design, everyone sees what they want to see, and you've got one hell of an unreliably narrated story on your hands. This was a very fresh and new idea in the medium. Long before it was a well-worn trope, Silent Hill 2 made you question the nature of the most basic things you were doing in the game. It made you think back to that foggy opening scene and wonder if that really was an inhuman monster that you were pummeling with a pipe, or if it was something much more troubling. For as many new ideas as it presented though, Silent Hill 2 is also chock full of musty, outdated narrative cliches. Its side characters, the women in particular, are shockingly one-dimensional representations of complex ideas. Hell, I can even rattle them off for you all right now. Uh, okay, Mary is the literal embodiment of the Madonna horror complex, now with boss fight. Eddie is the quote-unquote simple-minded brute who has to be taken out to the lake and put down. And of course, Angela is the quote-unquote broken assault victim who can't bear the burden of the things that have been done to her. I know I've harped on this before, but it's really jarring to me that these characters are treated so carelessly in this story. In a narrative about cruelty that seeks to provoke some sort of emotional response and self-reflection in the player, I find the lack of empathy in the portrayal of these characters troubling. It's even worse because now this game has become part of the capital H horror game canon, so it's held up as a shining example of writing and characterization. The truth is, it's really not. It's a great piece of storytelling that doesn't really contain any good writing. And I'll take a bit of time here to briefly break down the difference between those two ideas. When we talk about writing and story and storytelling in video games, it's always kind of complicated and confusing because we're talking about a medium that fuses together a bunch of different types of media you know you've got some traditional visual storytelling you've got some traditional writing you've got an interactive component to it as well and the way that all those things come together is really what creates the story or the experience of playing a video game when you break it down into its component parts though, you'll see that there are ways to analyze those elements independently of one another. So to me, when I say the writing in a video game, I'm usually referring to the literal script. The things the characters say, the text that you read, maybe in notes or in uh, captions or overlays on screen. Now that's different from the plotting of a game, which is just literally the events that happen 
in a game's story. Some of those events are going to happen in cutscenes, and some of them are going to happen outside of cutscenes or during gameplay. And the final bit here is the presentation. So that's the way that those bits of writing and bits of plotting are woven into the game and presented to the player. A really good example of this that I experienced recently was playing the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Playing that game made me realize that I really appreciate how the original game let you skip through conversations and dialogue quickly because a lot of the writing in that game is bad. Um, It's just mediocre. It doesn't leave much of an impact. However, when you're able to just kind of breeze past it quickly, as opposed to having to sit there and listen to it read to you, it doesn't bother me as much. And I can focus on the interesting bits of plotting in that game because I think the uh, events of the story in Final Fantasy VII are totally fascinating. It's this crazy epic journey, all this really weird apocalyptic stuff happens. It's just a cool story. So even if a game doesn't contain a lot of great writing, it can still have interesting plotting and it's up to the presentation to make it engaging to the player. So when I look at Silent Hill 2, I don't think there's any good writing in it. I don't think the dialogue is good. I don't think the actual like words on the page of Silent Hill 2 are interesting or memorable. However, the plotting is very, very interesting. And that is the big revolutionary thing that Silent Hill 2 did, which was creating a subversive rug pull and, you know, creating that effect of the player wondering if, you know, they're the villain of the game, later realizing that they kind of are, and then having that moment of reflection. I think what is definitely a mixed bag in Silent Hill 2, if we say the writing's bad, but the plotting's good, it has to be the presentation. And that's where we get into, you know, the character archetypes, the way that the characters are portrayed, and some of those musty cliches that I mentioned earlier. So I think that's probably the best way I can articulate my mixed feelings on Silent Hill 2, which I've mentioned many, many times on this show. I think it's a really interesting plot. It's a super fascinating structure for an entire story. I do love that big twist and that big um, rug pull as a concept, as an idea. Um, But I find a lot of the particulars and the details of the game to be lacking. That big idea, though, was huge. And it was big enough to cement Silent Hill 2's legacy as a classic. It really feels like that game opened the door for other games to question their audience's assumptions about violence and heroism. And to center narratives around the cruel things that humans do to one another. In 2005, we saw one of the biggest and boldest takes on that type of narrative in Shadow of the Colossus. Shadow of the Colossus, developed by Team Eco and published by Sony, was a big deal upon its release. It truly felt like a revolution in design and presentation within the medium. The fact that it has aged so well and more recently received a great PS4 remake, courtesy of Bluepoint Games, 
means that the reasons why are still readily apparent. It's a game that really commits to immersing the player in a particular viewpoint. Although it contains a lot of classic video game stuff like cutscenes and boss fights, it presents them in the most minimalist way possible. Music is deployed sparingly, the cinematic camera is rarely in your control, the huge landscapes are just as much of a focal point as the player character, and deliciously long segments of the game are given over to negative space. I think the most iconic thing about the game is just those long, long sections of riding your horse through empty fields. It really, I don't know, creates an atmosphere, to use an overused term. It's a winning strategy, one that makes the game a sensory delight. Shadow of the Colossus was the kind of game that made even the most fervent game haters admit that the form had some artistic merit. And yet, hidden within all that cinematic grandeur was a subversive story that made players ask, are we the baddies? The game weaves a lot of subtle clues that something isn't quite right into its epic tapestry. A god that's a bit too ominous, a protagonist who's a bit too brutish, and a series of enemies that are way too majestic and even weirdly relatable to be strictly villainous. That last point has always been my favorite aspect of the game. Killing a Colossus is never framed as some kind of triumphant victory. You're always positioned as the instigator, intruding on the peaceful lives of these majestic beasts and brutally murdering them as they desperately try to shake you off. After the struggle is over, the protagonist is overcome by a wave of dark energy before waking in the game's central hub, the now human-sized spirits of the colossi he's slain dejectedly watching over him. Even before the story makes it explicit, moments like these make it obvious that you are not playing as the hero of this story. Replaying this game, I couldn't help but notice that there are a few parallels between this game and Silent Hill 2. Namely, they're both tales about a tortured man arriving in a dead world and undertaking a violent quest to save a lost love, a quest that they should understand is impossible, but that they fully commit to regardless. Ultimately, their quest is futile, and they are only met by further death and destruction as the consequence of their actions. In the PS2 era, this story form was incredibly unique although it would later bloom into an entire micro-genre, complete with unique tropes and trappings, and it's easy to see why. This type of story, in which the player's expectations are slowly subverted as the story starts to question the protagonist's motive, is the perfect vehicle for questioning the violent tropes of action games. As time passed, it seemed that game devs were increasingly interested in questioning said tropes and subverting player expectations. The PS3 era gave us a couple of great examples, those being Nier and The Last of Us. The Last of Us is easy to point to as a clean and easy to understand example of a subversive action game. The story is straightforward, the gameplay is tight, and the production values are high. It seems to be a standard horror adventure game with an extra dose of realistic violence until the story flips and starts pointing its finger at the player. That particular turn is extremely effective thanks to how buttoned up and kind of normy the rest of the game is. Personally, 
It really took me by surprise when the last section of the game started painting the protagonist as a sort of deranged, self-centered psychopath, and I fucking loved it. With the added context of the studio responsible for the game also being the authors of the cartoonishly violent Uncharted games, the whole thing became a landmark example of audience subversion. Of course, this all balances on a knife's edge. The entire game preceding this turn is insanely violent, to the point of being hard to look at for much of its runtime. It really is an accurate portrayal of the cruelty of physical violence. If you make it to the end and you read it the way that I did, it justifies all the blood and gore. However, if you don't, it just comes off as an unhinged bloodbath, a kaleidoscope of cruelty awash in the deep maroon of human viscera. And if that's how you felt playing that game, I totally get it. Yoko Taro's Nier explores a lot of the same themes, but takes everything in the opposite direction. It's a slow-moving, story-heavy action RPG that keeps its feet planted firmly in the fantasy genre. The violence is patently unreal, and the character drama is over-the-top, anime-indebted, and wild as hell. Yet, at its core, it feels heavily inspired by Shadow of the Colossus. A very important plot point is the ideas that the enemies you face in the game are just scared and confused, rather than evil. It's almost like the video game equivalent of Toy Story, except instead of asking, what if toys had thoughts slash feelings slash inner lives, it asks, what if the little mushroom guys in Super Mario had thoughts slash feelings slash inner lives? It's a fascinating concept, one that has done much better in the sequel Near Automata, but is still very impressive as the centerpiece of a 2010 action RPG. Where Nier falters is once again poor writing. A messy, overcomplicated plot with atrocious pacing and a weirdly massive dose of misogyny and male gaze bullshit keep the game from achieving transcendence. But like Silent Hill 2, it stands as a fascinating mess of a game that tries to subvert audience expectations and question the preponderance of mindless violence in video games. This lineage of action horror games starting with Silent Hill 2 and moving through to The Last of Us and Nier sequels, thoroughly explored the idea that the expectation of violence in video games could be cruel, and that a more empathetic portrayal of violence wouldn't rely so heavily on such a massive body count. But what of the idea of emotional cruelty? That, as it turns out, is an entirely different yet parallel lineage of action-slash-horror games. Let's start again in the PS2 era with Rule of Rose. Rule of Rose is a game obsessed with the idea of cruelty. In it, a woman relives a traumatic portion of her childhood that took place while she was living in an orphanage. The events of the game play out in a psychedelic, fantastical, airship version of the orphanage and mirror the real-life horrors that she experienced as a child. The story is heavily inspired by Lord of the Flies, specifically in the way that it features a group of children creating a reproduction of the flawed systems that govern the adult world. 
the airship orphanage of Rule of Rose is replete with a governing caste system, a kind of hybrid monarchy slash oligarchy that very clearly delineates who is in charge and who is not. Behind all the pomp, circumstance, and metaphor of the game is a true tale of what happened to the protagonist Jennifer, a much more grounded tale of abuse, assault, and murder. Rule of Rose is a harrowing tale, one that got banned in many countries due to its inability to shy away from the cruel and unusual ways in which kids can bully each other. But that exploration of cruelty was, ultimately, an attempt at telling an empathetic tale of grief and loss. I've never felt that Rule of Rose was exploitative or problematic because of the narrative conclusions that it draws from its disturbing subject matter. It's also in line with the developer's other games. Rule of Rose was made by Punchline, a company started by former employees of Love Delice that would later morph into Onion Games. Between those three companies, you've got a development history that encompasses games like Moon Remix RPG, Lack of Love, Tulip, and Blackbird, among others. Rule of Rose may be the only one of those games that is explicitly horror, but they all deal with heavy themes centered around the importance of empathy in human society, as well as what happens when that empathy is lost. Moon probably sums it up best, so let's talk about that for a second. Moon is, at first blush, a bizarre 16-bit style RPG with a visual style that is best described as grimdark Yoshi's Island, and a meandering pace that suggests an even more stoned version of Yume Nikki. You wander around as a strange, disembodied sprite without any clear direction. You are frequently visited by strange characters who dispense cryptic advice, none of which is very helpful. Your first couple of hours with Moon are going to be strange, disorienting, and most likely at least a bit frustrating. If you've never played Moon, you're probably thinking, hey, that kind of sounds like Undertale. And you're right. It is impossible to talk about Moon in the modern day without talking about Undertale. This is not an opinion, it's a fact. You need look no further than director Yoshiro Kimura's recent Vice interview, where he credits the creator of Undertale with inspiring him to finish the English localization of Moon although the legions of internet people comparing the two should also suffice. Undertale's connection to Moon is kind of bizarre. Creator Toby Fox has stated that he was greatly inspired by the game's premise, a non-violent RPG where you attempt to rebuild a broken world, despite never having played the game itself. Not unlike Boris writing the song Farewell as a tribute to other people's descriptions of My Bloody Valentine without ever actually having heard said band. As you can imagine, the end results of both experiments bear little resemblance to their inspirations. Undertale is a game that I find incredibly charming, more than a little fascinating, and also extremely off-putting on a nuts and bolts level. Like Moon, it is a postmodern satire of role-playing games, and video games as a whole, really, that is meant to be played in a non-violent way. Every encounter can be solved without resorting to violence, and the game gives you multiple tools and gameplay mechanics to avoid spilling any blood while you explore the game world. Not that you'd know that from actually playing the game. My problem with Undertale is that it was designed with a one correct way of playing the game, yet it never tells you this. You figure it out eventually, by which time you've probably already ruined your playthrough of the game, 
a quandary that the game invites you to fix by playing through the entire game again. It's a design problem that is exacerbated by the game continually leading you away from that one correct way by requiring you to push through misleading dialogue options and muscle through interminable minigame sequences that any reasonable person would quickly abandon in favor of doing it wrong. The game's stoic commitment to its own opacity means that you will not know that you are doing it wrong unless you are using a guide or getting yelled at by your nine-year-old nephew at a Ramadan iftar, not speaking from experience or anything. The genius of Moon is that it doesn't bother with anything that you'd find in a traditional RPG. Its opening cutscene snarkily dispenses with just about every relevant trope, from endless exposition dumps to ridiculously bloodthirsty heroes whose collateral damage would paint them as villains in any quasi-realistic scenario. By the time we gain control of our avatar, a ghostly boy who appears as a sentient set of clothes, it's clear that we are not playing just another 90s JRPG. That's probably the only thing that's clear, however, as everything else is shrouded in mystery, from the minimalistic UI to what exactly we are doing in this world. At the risk of breaking the spell, I'll explain. Moon is a game where you explore a mysterious world that your character has fallen into and attempt to help its residents in the interest of spreading quote-unquote love. You help people either by completing tasks for them or, in the case of the many fallen creatures scattered around the world, by catching their souls and bringing them back to life. All of this is framed, quite brilliantly, as a cleanup operation in the wake of destruction led by The Hero, a psychotically violent knight on his own inscrutable quest for justice. His complete lack of regard for the chaos wrought by his actions necessitates your own quest to restore love and balance to the game world. It's a duality that is woven deeply into the game's fabric. You oppose the hero not just by reviving the many innocent creatures he has killed and undoing his deeds, but also by not deigning to use his methods. Unlike Undertale, there is no combat phase. You are never placed in opposition to any of the creatures you are trying to help. You simply explore and interact. There are puzzles to solve and souls to catch, but you never need to play at being a traditional RPG hero. You never fight the good fight because you simply don't fight. Yet, Moon is also not a walking simulator. In fact, it has extremely gamey mechanics and even a linear progression system. Most of this is based around an in-game clock and your character's action limit. The idea that your character can only be awake for a certain amount of time before they need to find a bed and sleep. As you complete tasks and revive monsters, your character's action limit quickly balloons until they can stay up for hours and days at a time. It's a brilliant system that not only encourages exploration, but also fosters a sense of discovery better than maybe any other RPG I've ever played. Like I said, I was massively confused during my first couple hours with Moon. As far as I could tell, you could only wander around the town and talk to people. I was clearly finding hints of things to do and places to go, but I couldn't make any headway, especially with my tiny action limit counting down. I was interrogating townies and slamming cookies to stay awake without any clear reason, until I discovered that you can sometimes mash the A button to interact with environmental obstacles. Suddenly, the entire game world opened up. I got a house, I met tons of strange and charming characters, I found wholly new gameplay and cutscene styles within the game. Even more than using the time machine in Chrono Trigger or leaving Midgar in Final Fantasy VII, it created the illusion of discovering a new world. Of course, 
Any RPG world worth its salt has to prove that it's worth discovering. Chrono Trigger and FF7 both sported an aesthetic whose clash of cyberpunk hellscape and quaint fantasy world was instantly intriguing. While Moon has very little in common with those games aesthetically, it also deeply understands the importance of ambience. The world of Moon is a quietly bizarre place, and I mean that literally. There is very little in-game music aside from the optional tunes pumping out of your mini-disc player. Yes, an actual mini-disc player. Most of the sound in the game is gentle ambient noise. Birds chirping, wind blowing, caves dripping, etc. While I love the idea of listening to my own music on a fucking mini-disc player, I love the game's quiet atmosphere even more. It pairs perfectly with the muted yet cartoonish visual style, complete with dreamlike architecture and utterly strange character designs. If it sounds like I'm praising Moon's fantastic environmental storytelling, that's because I am. The game didn't just take a jab at overly loquacious exposition dumps for the fun of it, they actually made a whole game that serves as an alternative to that style of storytelling. Moon is a non-linear game. It's a world full of challenges to complete and characters to meet, but you do not have to complete most of them in any particular order. Certain events may trigger other events later, but it eschews both traditional quest structure and linear narrative. The main driving forces of Moon are wandering and waiting. The progression system leads to you being able to stay awake longer so you can wander further and wait longer. When you find a new area, you wander around and then you wait. The hook here is that the world of Moon is a fantastic place in which to wander and wait. The characters are legitimately hilarious and often contain hidden depths. A record store clerk who practices guitar when no one is watching, a barkeep with a hidden past, a chef who will regale you with a dreamlike story if you catch him at the right time, etc. Similarly, the descriptions of monsters that you find around the world are delightfully weird. Instead of slimes and big cats, we're reviving monsters who claim to be town agents and bats that only use echolocation at quote-unquote family functions. We don't go on epic quests or get caught up in love triangles with any of these characters, but the whole tapestry that Moon weaves with these characters is insanely impressive. I think, ultimately, the goal of the creators was to create an organic world in a setting where that sort of thing would not usually exist. It's an exercise in taking a setting where people and places are viewed strictly as utility and attempting to change the player's headspace so that they see those same entities as worthy of empathy and love. It's a surprisingly poignant game to play in the modern age, when basic human decency is in very, very short supply. Rule of Rose is surprisingly a similar type of story, despite not having any gameplay similarities to Moon. It's a short and sweet travelogue through a world of characters who seem initially threatening yet, ultimately, reveal their vulnerabilities to the player via brief snatches of revealing dialogue and cutscenes. The point of the story, as much as one exists, is not to outline who's a hero and who is a villain, but rather to suggest that the human experience is weird, messy, and hard to understand. The cruelty at the heart of Rule of Rose is the result of a cycle of violence. Most of the perpetrators of heinous acts in the game are themselves victims of violence and abuse. The story itself is the character working through her shit, and there are no easy answers in Rule of Rose. Really, that might be the best way to sum up the lineage of games that Moon and Rule of Rose inspired. 
Games that shy away from easy answers in regards to emotional cruelty as a storytelling device. As I mentioned before, Undertale might be the most fully formed descendant of the Onion Games style. It does a great job of humanizing its characters and proving how ridiculous the expectation of violence in video games is. Like, why would you assume that every character you meet in a video game is an enemy that needs to be killed? It's patently absurd. The walking sim style of game represents the other main branch off of the Onion Games family tree. Largely devoid of violence, combat, or anything like that, Walking Sims represented a totally new avenue for games to explore when seeking to tell a dramatic story that revolves around strictly emotional story beats. It sounds like a happy ending for gamers looking for a more thoughtful experience, and yet it hasn't really played out that way. In writing this episode, I think my main goal was to sort out whether or not games had undergone that same transition from exploitation to contemplation that horror films had. The mere existence of the walking sim genre suggests that they have, and yet, as the last episode of the show proved, many of these games fall apart under scrutiny. The medium, which I think stands as one of the highest budget, most technologically advanced and most artful examples of a vaguely walking sim type game, still couldn't really earn its stripes as a compelling story about human cruelty. Throughout its runtime, it falls prey to the many traps of telling that type of story. From empty sloganeering to frustrating both sidesism, its story never really earned the depth of its themes. Extremely troubling ideas like fascism, pedophilia, child abuse, among other horrifying things. One thing that I've been harping on since the start of this show is that any work of fiction that wants to address really disturbing themes needs to do those themes justice. The level of quality writing, quality production, and first-hand knowledge of a topic required to address these sorts of topics is extremely high. And we, as audience members, really shouldn't compromise on this point. This, I think, is the transition that video games have yet to fully make. It's definitely happening on a smaller scale at the indie level, but it has yet to break through to the realm of mainstream or AAA gaming. Personally, I look forward to the day that it does. The medium of video games has a unique ability to forge a direct connection with its audience, a connection that can be used to subvert expectations, change points of view on sensitive topics, and even give important insights on the human condition. I think that video games are uniquely set up to comment on violence and to give people a sense of ownership over a story about cruelty. When you put the actions directly in the hands of the viewer and turn them into a player, you open up a unique line of communication that non-interactive media can't access. I think that's why something like Shadow of the Colossus hits so hard, or why something like Rule of Rose feels so heavy. You're in the middle of the story. You're doing things that you find objectionable. And if the story has something to say about that, or some sort of commentary that gets you on an emotional level, or 
really just has anything worthwhile to communicate to the player can be a very, very powerful thing. I think that's why I had such a big problem with The Last of Us 2. I felt like it leaned so much into the violence without actually saying anything of note. And if I was to catalog the messages in the game and sort of make a list of the things that it was saying, I find a lot of them politically objectionable. I don't understand why it focused on the things it did. I don't understand why it alienated the people in the story that it chose to alienate. And ultimately, I don't know what it was trying to say in a big picture sense besides that revenge is bad. A really bland take that doesn't really add much to the discourse. I guess I'm saying that if video games want to actually grow up and leave the adolescent stage that I think they've been pretty stuck in for a few years now, they're going to need to address cruelty. Not just the cruelty that exists in the world, the horrible things that happen every day, the systemic violence that's perpetrated by governments and police forces everywhere, but also the cruelty inherent to the medium of video games. For a medium that has long revolved around concepts of violence and death, it seems that it has shockingly little to say about those concepts in the real world. In a world that grows ever more cruel by the day, I hope that video games, and horror games in particular, can become more insightful and humanistic rather than more cold and blandly violent. And for as little faith as recent AAA titles inspire, looking back at some of my favorite classic PS2 games does give me a sense of hope that it's something that is achievable and something that we'll see in the near future. Here's to hoping, and thanks for listening. <laughs>